When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Today we also have guests in the form of Jane Ann Gadia, the chief executive of Virgin Money, and Giovanni Sabatini, who's the general manager of the Italian Banking Association, the ABI. This week we'll be discussing the latest report from Jane Ann Gadia, the head of Virgin Money, on women in finance and why there aren't more of them. We'll also be looking ahead at the outlook for misconduct penalties, as a new report highlights that they're not going away anytime soon. And finally, a look at Italy and why Italian banks are so bearishly viewed by investors. First, though, that new report out from the head of Virgin Money, Jane Angadia. Emma, you've been looking at this report, and it basically has been quite a long time coming. They've done quite a lot of research around this report to try and find out why there are so few women in senior roles in finance and come up with recommendations for solving the issue. Yes, so Jane Ann Gadia, Chief Executive of the UK's Challenger Bank Virgin Money, led this report on behalf of the Treasury and worked with the government on this. It was launched about nine months ago and they've come to the conclusion that there is a lack of gender diversity within senior positions across the financial services sector. It's found that women occupy only 14% of senior roles across companies. So this obviously includes the likes of banks and insurers in the UK. So as a result, one of its key recommendations is that the bonuses of senior managers at financial services companies are linked to the number of women in senior positions and the level of gender diversity. So in this regard, they've launched a charter setting out a number of ways that financial services firms can achieve this. This includes appointing a senior executive to be responsible for this and setting internal targets. But the report has actually stopped short of imposing a industry-wide level in terms of the number of women that should occupy senior roles and the proportion of pay or bonuses that should be attached to this. So there's no target. It's very different from the old government target for non-executives, for example, uh, hitting a 25% number or or, uh, any number over a certain time frame. Exactly. Jane Angadia has said that she is targeting a 50-50 gender work balance at Virgin Money over the next four years until 2020, and that she hopes other companies can do the same. A number of banks already signed up to the charter, I should say including Lloyd's, Barclays, HSBC and RBS. But if other financial services companies fail to do so, then there'll be another review in about nine months' time to see how successful it has been on a voluntary basis. Well, you've been speaking to Jane Angadia as well, so let's hear from the woman herself what she has to say about the topic. This particular review is around women progressing throughout all of the levels in financial services. And my own view is that targets do work and so LNG for example have been really successful in setting the objective to get to 50% of their workforce being male and 50% female by 2020, 50-50 by 2020 and we Virgin Money have decided to adopt that as well. 
And I encourage everybody, all firms, to set their own internal targets. But the reason that I don't think it's right to be prescriptive is I think that this is something that needs to be done thoughtfully. And the Lord Davis review showed that actually he suggested that 25% minimum women representation in boards, he's achieved that, and that was a voluntary approach. And so broadly, our view has been that we shouldn't be interfering in the way in which financial services companies run their businesses, but we should be encouraging them to think about how they might run their businesses more fairly in terms of gender balance and, and in the end, I hope, ultimately diversity balance. And actually with a better economic output because there's so much data out there that shows that organisations that have proper balance actually produce superior financial results. And in terms of some of the criticism that's come out with regards to suggesting that just by attaching pay to having more women in senior roles, that this could mean some organisations end up just promoting women in order to get higher pay. Do you think that's a potential problem? I don't believe it should be a problem at all, provided that we get to a place where the leadership teams of all financial services organisations take this issue as seriously and address it with the same level of attention and quality as they do all of their other KPIs and financial results. You say, Emma, that there is sort of criticism around the remuneration point. If I'm really honest, I simply don't get it. And the reason that I don't get it is, if this is an issue that we should take seriously, which I passionately believe it is, If this is an issue that really drives superior economic performance, which we can definitely demonstrate, then it should be an issue, I think, that finds its way into the corporate boardroom and the exco table because it's something that's right for business. And so linking pay to that outcome seems to me to be completely sensible. And, of course, I do feel that that's validated today by the fact that so many significant financial services companies have signed up to the charter that supports the review and have confirmed that they will be announcing their own strategy, appointing their own executive and attaching executive remuneration to the achievement of gender targets. Let's move on to our second topic. Caroline, you've been looking at some new research around the outlook for misconduct penalties in the banking sector. What is this research saying? Moody's put out a report on Tuesday morning saying that the UK's five largest banks will still have their profit constrained over the next two years due to compensation, misconduct and related legal charges. So at least another two years before we'll see the end of the seemingly unending cycle of financial scandal fines weighing on banks' balance sheets. We saw last year, obviously, a particularly penal year in terms of the infamous mis-selling or cost of mis-selling from payment protection insurance, PPI. That, I'm guessing, is going to be tailing off over these couple of years now that we have an end date for claims on that issue. But it will still cost the banks quite a lot of money and there'll be other misconduct issues that will take up the slack as well. Absolutely. So PPI was very much the lion's share of why these five banks' charges went up 50% last year. So PPI alone accounted for £7.6 billion, and that's 51% increase compared on the year previously. 
So yes, there is this two-year deadline that the FCA is expected to set this year. So the deadline will be 2018 for further customer compensation claims on PPI. So Moody's is expecting this to cause a bit of a surge by customers over the next two years. Banks tend to have provisioned for this already. So whilst next year is still expected to be high in terms of these kinds of charges, 2017 and 2018, it should be tailing off. Right. And what about the other issues? I'm guessing mortgage-backed securities are going to cost the banks quite a lot of money still to come. Yes. So MBS in the States, that still affects RBS. There's a civil claim outstanding there. And also Barclays are still waiting to see. And uh, there was a somewhat contested claim last year in the courts in the US last year that said that RBS could be on the hook for as much as $13 billion dollars. Now, obviously, that's an extrapolated estimate, and it also comes from the plaintiff's side. So one has to take it with a pinch of salt. But the fact remains that these probably won't be small charges. So not great for the profit outlook for the banks, Martin? Certainly isn't. Caroline mentioned the RBS case. Just to take that, for instance, the banks restarting dividend payments for the first time since the financial crisis. That momentous event is on hold until this cloud of litigation, particularly the US mortgage-backed securities, mis-selling allegations. Once that's cleared, then RBS can finally start paying a dividend again, which will be a, a very important milestone. So for a bank like RBS, this is crucial. But lots of other banks still have huge laundry lists of litigation, conduct, investigations, you know, pages and pages of them from everything from providing bank accounts and handling transactions that are allegedly bribes between FIFA officials to Standard Chartered, which is being investigated still over this sanctions issue, breaching of sanctions. Um, The list just goes on and on. You've got all the banks that have recently disclosed that they're being investigated over this Princelings affair, you know, hiring relatives of senior government officials in Asia, and particularly in China. So the Moody's report from today is focused on the UK banks, but this is far from a UK bank issue. I mean, obviously, it's affecting the UK banks in a big way, but the Princelings issue is more a kind of US investment bank story than most others, I suppose. Uh, Barclays, Deutsche, HSBC all disclosed they're being looked at it. I think in the US, the big mortgage fines, the big fines relating to mis-selling of products in the financial crisis that, you know, those have been mostly dealt with now. Yeah, the US banks got ahead of the curve on that. They've had certainly peak peak fines, but I think it's probably too early to call the same for the Europeans. Okay. Let's move on to our final topic for the day. We've been in conversation with Giovanni Sabatini, who's the general manager of the ABI, the Italian Banking Association. Martin, you and I both spoke to Giovanni about the state of the Italian banks and particularly why investors are so bearish about them. And we started off by asking him about the outlook for non-performing loans and why everyone's so scared about bad debts. Well, I think that markets are reacting negatively to a global uh, negative environment. Downside risk have increased globally, but of course the focus has been recently on Italian banks. The question about the asset quality has been raised, also based on some uh, misunderstanding. Uh, Let's start from the figures. NPLs, when you speak about NPLs, you have to use net data, less the provisioning and not gross data that are misleading. Net data shows that the amount of bad loans today is about 84 billion euro, about 4.6% of total loans, highlighting that there is a high coverage 
more than 56% of the total bad loans is covered by provisioning. So I think that there are some uh, misunderstandings that have to be clarified. I went on to ask Giovanni about the bonds that were bailed in in the wind-up of four of the country's most troubled banks just before Christmas and what that said about the future bail-in of bonds, particularly among banks' depositors. I think that one problem with the European rules was that they do not foresee for a transition period and that they have a retroactive effect. So even bonds that were uh, issued uh, several years before the entry into force of the new legislation were affected by the new burden-sharing procedure. I think this is a, an issue uh, on which I hope that uh, a European institution, uh, the European Commission and the Parliament should rethink uh, because it's going to create problems in terms of certainty of the rights of the holders of uh, financial instruments. So Martin, what did you make of Giovanni Sabatini's riposte to the market's bearishness about Italian banks? Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? (laughs) I think that there is a huge concern among investors and regulators about the level of non-performing loans in the Italian banking system. That is coupled with the weak economic growth that we see in the Italian economy. And you add into that the low returns that the banking system in the country continues to generate. And it's overbanked. There are too many bank branches, there are too many banks, and their profitability is too weak. So the answer must be consolidation and also getting to grips with these NPLs. And I think that what we're seeing in the last six to 12 months is signs that the new single eurozone banking regulator, the SSM, which is part of the ECB, is really putting its foot down and trying to press the Italians to take action finally to address this overhang of non-performing loans, which is weighing so heavily on the sector. And the latest example of that is with the proposed merger between Banco Popolare and Banco Popolare di Milano, where the ECB is requiring the weaker of the two banks to raise capital before allowing the merger to go ahead, because uh, the ECB says, look, in order to be strong enough and have a strong enough balance sheet to write off these bad debts and sell them and get you off your balance sheet and start lending again with a cleaner balance sheet, you need that strength of capital. And they're using every opportunity they can to try and inch the Italian banking system towards restoring its health. It's a bit of an uphill task, I think, as resistance from people like Giovanni Sabatini towards the the ECB's tough stance on this. But also, it's a political nightmare in Italy to try and get past local vested interests. There's so many foundations that own these institutions. It's not going to be a quick task to push ahead with mergers. It's not, but I think that under the Renzi government, we have seen real progress towards freeing up these banks to merge by changing the voting rights in these populari to allow them to merge, which was impossible before, and also coming up with this scheme whereby the government is going to provide a guarantee to securitization vehicles that can buy some of these non-performing loans off the banks. I think that both of those things are very positive. I would say that in Italy there is also 
a requirement for the government to go a bit further on liberalising and reforming the bankruptcy code and speeding up the judicial process, allowing creditors to seize collateral where loans have defaulted, because it can take up to seven or eight years, which is two or three times the average. So whilst Giovanni is right to say they have got provisions against a lot of these NPLs, the 200 billion euro figure is misleading in that respect, and there is collateral for the bit that they haven't. But the problem is with selling these NPLs is that investors don't give the full credit to the value of that collateral because it takes eight years to get your hands on that collateral if you try and enforce default. So signs of progress, but maybe just a little bit too early to be bullish about the Italian banking system. Yeah, the jury's still out. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline and Emma here in the studio. Thank you to our guests, Jane Angadia from Virgin Money and Giovanni Sabatini from the Italian ABI. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.